Hello again, and welcome to The Main Question, a podcast series from the University of Maine, where we talk to researchers, innovators, and changemakers who are taking on some of today's biggest questions. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. What would it be like to visit the most remote, harsh, and spectacular locations on Earth? Anybody who's ever had a thirst for adventure has likely dreamt of visiting the South Pole or Mount Everest, even the massive ice sheets of Greenland. Well, today we visit with a humane scientist and researcher who has not only spent a great deal of time in these remote areas, he's devoted his life's work to doing groundbreaking climate change research in these locations. In the past 50 years or so, Paul Majewski, the director of UMaine's Climate Change Institute, has come to know these places well. Over the course of several dozen expeditions to both poles, the Himalayas, Greenland, glaciers in the Alps and South America, even remote jungles, Majewski has brought research results back from the field, mostly in the form of ice cores that are drilled from the planet's glaciers. The data contained in these cores have profoundly changed the way we view Earth's climate system and the changes that are taking place within it. He has spent many weeks, sometimes even months, living in a tent, battling the elements, drilling and recovering the data hidden in these receding glaciers, using everything from helicopters to a herd of yaks to do so. Just traveling to these remote locales would be the adventure of a lifetime. Combining those experiences with many profound scientific discoveries creates a truly unique story. In this first part of a two-part podcast, we covered many topics from the spark that led to his interest, the science, the logistics of living and working in these harsh conditions, and what these findings tell us about the direction in which our planet is headed. Our main question for this podcast, what is it like living, working, and making scientific discoveries world's most remote locations. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, there's uh, so many directions we can go in, but maybe we could start with, um, if you meet somebody in a restaurant or you talk to a school group, how do you describe to them what you do? That's a good question. Um, I think it depends on the situation and the interests of the groups. Uh, I think the uh, probably the stimulating part for a climate scientist who does the sort of work that we do is the fact that it's a combination of so many things. It's a combination of uh, scientific discovery, uh, adventure, uh, applying, uh, learning new things and applying them in new directions, uh, helping people to understand uh, what the future holds. And in fact, uh, the ultimate mission in my purpose of uh, in, in my view of what our institute is trying to do is to understand the climate system well enough and understand the impacts of climate change well enough uh, so that we can help prepare uh, on local and global scales uh, people and the ecosystem for what's in store for us and what's happening right now because it's happening very fast. And nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows exactly what will happen. There are certain minima that we know absolutely will happen. Uh, and then there are a lot of potential surprises, and we want to reduce the number of surprises so that people are prepared. What we have in store for us can be thought of something that's uh, extremely depressing and completely, out, completely outside of our realm uh, to change. I don't believe that that's true. It's very sobering what's happening already and what will happen. 
we will not avoid many things. There will be uh, people and ecosystems in continuing jeopardy that will get worse. Uh, but if you know what's about to happen, you have the possibility to prepare and also to innovate. And I, I find that to be a very exciting opportunity. This is the, you know, this is sort of push, unfortunately, that you get out of a war uh, where new things are discovered. Uh, and this is a form of war. Uh, this is a war in some ways against ourselves for the things that we've been doing. We need to learn how to control ourselves and we need to learn how to uh, interact better uh, with our environment so that we can live uh, in a more harmonious way with the environment. Maybe take us back a little bit. Um, I know you were born in Scotland. You emigrated to, to the United States. Uh, where and how did this fascination with the natural world come from? Well, it's, you know, one never really knows the answer to that. Um, a as a small child in, uh, in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, my parents, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a country in which you can see long distances. And, and a a as a consequence, I think it makes your imagination uh, soar. Uh, you can make the same case for being in a tiny space, too, I guess, that your imagination might soar because you want to get out, sort of. Uh, but I, I grew up uh, er very early years in a, in a place with a lot of space where I could see long distances. Uh, my parents uh, had me out walking a lot and exploring uh, as a little child. When we moved to New York City, uh, I was uh, absolutely enthralled with things like National Geographic magazine, uh, with the American Museum of Natural History. They took me to places that I couldn't go uh, because of where I lived then. And then I was a Boy Scout, and uh, that opened up doors for me. And I realized that there was a large world out there, and I wanted to be part of exploring it. So my goal from the very beginning has been to be an explorer. I didn't necessarily understand the, the full uh, dimension of what it would be to be a, an explorer. So um, we can get into a lot of details about different trips and such, but maybe just give us the, the satellite view. Uh, where have you gone to do your work? How many expeditions, how many uh, months or years have you spent in a tent or in the field? I've spent a lot of time in the field. Um, I, I've sort of lost track of the number of expeditions, uh, not because they don't care, uh, simply because uh, it depends on the way you count them. So I, I simply say it's more than 55 expeditions that I've led. Uh, they have been to some of the remotest high elevation and polar regions of the world. Uh, in the process, I've gone through, to get to these places, I've gone through all sorts of environments, uh, some amount of desert, some amount of, uh, of jungle. I've had the great opportunity to experience everything from no people and no animals uh, to minimal number of animals to large numbers of people in various places. And uh, so it's been a, it's been a tremendous uh, learning experience uh, for me. Uh, I, I think we never stop learning if we have our have our eyes open. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to go to many, many remote places that nobody's ever been able to go to before. These expeditions have uh, uh, taken me, you know, to the highest mountains in the world, uh, to the most remote interior portions of ice sheets, uh, to places that you can only get to in the Southern Ocean by sailboat, uh, to... Uh, regions in Asia, uh, in the Himalayas, where it took us literally six weeks to find where we were going because 
the very best thing that we had to use was a satellite image with a bunch of clouds on it. What was the longest time you spent uh, in one in one chunk of time in a tent? Do you, in, any idea? Uh, you mean on an expedition? On an expedition, yeah. Yeah, I think the longest time is getting pretty close to four months, and that was in wow. the Antarctic. Uh, I, I, I I, I, I sort of stopped counting how much time I've spent in, in a tent. Well, I never really did count, but as I think back and sort of calculate how much, it's got to be at least four years of living in a tent in various polar and, and high-altitude uh, areas. Um, and, and it sounds a little bit odd uh, that uh, somebody might do that. There are a lot of people who actually do by choice. Uh, and uh, it's a great experience. Uh, it, it's almost always with somebody else uh, in there. Uh, you are uh, living as close to the environment as you can. As sometimes we don't even use tents. Sometimes we just uh, stay outside. It's a great way to be extremely mobile, to be close to what you're studying. And I'm a great believer in the fact that if you're studying something about the environment, you need to live in that environment for a while. Uh, modeling is phenomenal. It's very important. Uh, but it's important for people who do modeling, and we do some modeling too, uh, to understand where the data comes from, uh, what a storm is like in the case of uh, people studying uh, weather and climate, uh, and, and what organisms look like, obviously, for biologists, et cetera. So let's talk a little bit about the science of climate change. Mm -hmm. How does studying the past inform today or the future? I mean, it's the only thing we can study because it's already happened, but how do you extrapolate that forward? If you want to understand what's going to happen in the future, <clears throat> you basically have two uh, groups of information that you can look at. One is what's, what is it that humans have actually recorded? And, and we've recorded uh, changes in the environment for um, thousands of years, actually, as, as, as civilizations. Uh, the data that's being collected in, let's say, the last hundred years is, is probably uh, the, the most usable because it covers large areas. Uh, it's being collected more consistently. And, and, you know, if we focus in on weather and climate data, um, there's a pretty good body of uh, climate information. Uh, for the last hundred years, uh, I think people who specialize in this field, uh, we would say that the very best data really comes from probably the late 1970s to the present. That's not a very long time period. But it is enough of a time period uh, to understand a lot of things like season-to-season -season variability and um, patterns of climate and, and, and how the climate system operates. Um, if you want to make a prediction for the future based on only the last, let's say, 50 or uh, so years of, of data, it would be hard because uh, until recently, the last 50 years of, of data certainly showed trends. It showed a warming trend beginning in about uh, the late uh, 1970s, a, a dr more dramatic warming trend uh, starting then. Uh, but it didn't necessarily show something that we discovered uh, in the early 1990s, that the climate system can change very rapidly. Uh, it's because of records that go back much farther in time uh, ice cores, uh, lake cores, ocean cores, tree ring records, uh, that we've been able to understand more about how fast the climate can change, what controls the climate system. And the answer is that the very same things that control the climate system in the past control the climate system today, except that uh, uh, humans have gotten in and basically dramatically increased the magnitude and the rate in which these things impact the climate system. 
without an understanding of what controls the climate system from the natural system, without that starting point uh, prior to humans, uh, we would have a lot of trouble deconvoluting our involvement and, and the natural involvement. So you need both of those together. You need the past, you need the modern uh, record of decades in order to really get the details, to, un to have the spatial control, to begin to really identify the patterns. And then you need to go back in time to look for analogs of uh, warm and cold and uh, how fast things can happen and how big they can be, uh, which you can't get necessarily from recent records. Let's talk a little bit about ice cores. Why are they important? How do we know they're accurate? And then maybe we can get into how you get the darn things out of the ice and get them back here. But, but why, why are ice cores the, one of the main tools that you use? Uh, our institute uses several different tools for understanding past climate. The one that I specialize in is ice cores. Um, and uh, each one has their own value uh, because you, you can't collect an ice core anywhere in the world. You obviously have to go where there are glaciers and where the record is captured. Um, if, you, if we understand that uh, one um, sort of confining element of ice cores, although they can tell us about a much larger area than where the glacier uh, resides, they're a very robust tool. They tell you about past temperature, precipitation, sea ice expansion, extent, biological activity in the ocean and on the land, uh, lightning, uh, solar variability, um, storms, whether they come from the ocean or the land, what is the actual cause for an increased level in something in the atmosphere? For example, lead. Uh, there are uh, natural sources of lead in rocks. Why do we have so much lead in the atmosphere and in drinking water and exposed in the environment? It's because we mined it. Uh, we smelted it and we put it into the atmosphere. So we understand a lot about how much humans in the last few decades, and in some cases centuries, uh, have changed the system. From that point of view, ice cores are, I, I think everybody would agree, they are the most robust uh, past climate uh, tool. You need other records to go along with it, to go into places where there aren't ice cores, and, uh, uh, and that's one of the big deficiencies of ice cores. You can tell using an ice core, for example, from the tropics what happened uh, in the Pacific or uh, the tropical Pacific or the tropical Atlantic, but those ice cores can be partially melted, they can have problems, and therefore you go uh, to other tools. Ice cores um, are in general, uh, ice core records are in general proxy records. One of the few things they are not a proxy record for are greenhouse gases. Uh, we have proven in our community, not work done by me, but by our community, that the levels of greenhouse gases that we see in ice cores are uh, very, very close, if not exactly what you're seeing in the atmosphere, uh, with a little bit of a lag time because it takes them a while to actually um, <clears throat> Uh, settle in and be locked in to the ice. For most of the measurements we make, uh, they tell us about temperature, uh, storm patterns, and a variety of other things. They're a proxy tool, uh, which means that we need to calibrate them to something that we understand today, and that's where the modern uh, weather and climate records become so important and why it's so important uh, to have ice cores that overlap those records, and we can say, yeah, uh, this measurement that we believe is a measurement of temperature is telling us, uh, you know, within 90 to 90 percent certainty that this is what the temperature did, but it's also got a 10 percent component that's telling us about something else. And teasing all those things out it is what we do in this field in order to perfect and make those proxy tools that much better. 
Now, I, I'm sure the science of this would quickly go over my head and just about everybody else's head, but just basically, you, you pull an ice core out of a glacier and it goes down many years and centuries. How, does, how do the layers from each year, how do you extract some of the facts that you're talking about, the uh, storms or the amount of pollution or greenhouse gases? How do you determine from that little layer of ice what was going on? It's a great question, and I know you've been in the field and you've watched some of this stuff and you've come to the lab uh, and, and are as experienced as, uh, as many of us in this. The most important thing to start with is figuring out uh, what represents a year in an ice core. And what res represents an ice core, a year in an ice core uh, may not be the full year. Uh, it might be eroded uh, by the wind. It might be melted. If you go, uh, it, depending where you go. So you first have to figure out what is a year and how much of the year is preserved. Uh, and we can do that, for example, by taking a look in seasonal differences of, uh, of chemistry. When the air blows from uh, the south, and comes into Maine, we know that uh, the air is coming off a warmer source. Uh, when it comes off the ocean, we can actually look at a, a signal, something simple like sodium chloride, and say it comes from the ocean. We can look at a, another measurement, which tells us that in general it's warmer, so we can track, uh, track these air masses. Uh, and then we can calibrate them. We can see, okay, if I have X amount of sodium in this ice core, does that tell me anything about the strength of the storm? So you can, you can relate it to the uh, actual measured strength of a, of a storm. Uh, and we can do the same thing with many of these. So we have uh, measurements which now total in excess of 100 in the ice core community uh, that tell us uh, and are calibrated to storm events, to uh, hum uh, things that we can absolutely demonstrate are related to uh, human emissions, for example, lead in the atmosphere, sulfur in the atmosphere. So the next question is, how precisely can you sample these things in a year? Um, and if you're near the upper, if you're sampling at the upper part of an ice core uh, and the snow accumulation is very large, uh, right now the, uh, the classic sampling resolution is about one centimeter. So if you have uh, a meter of snow and you can sample at one centimeter resolution, you get 100 samples per year. That's not so bad. Uh, however, with depth, that one meter gets more and more compressed. And when you get down to the bottom of a glacier, even a glacier that might only be 100 meters thick, uh, that meter might get compressed down to a couple of centimeters. And all of a sudden, centimeter scale resolution just doesn't do it anymore because uh, in order to tell the difference between, for example, the season of the year that has a lot of uh, marine warm air coming in, you've got to preserve that signal, and that, that part of the year, and you've got to preserve the part of the year when it isn't. So you can see this seasonal you know, up and down that tells you you have a year. So we've developed uh, here in the Institute a tool that uh, goes well beyond the classic uh, one, sam one sample per centimeter, and we're now sampling at close to 100 microns uh, uh, per meter, which means that we're getting about 10,000 samples per meter, which means that we can go back, and we have already, in a place like the Greenland Ice Sheet, we can go back 80,000 years ago, if not 100,000 years ago, and we can get at least 20, 50, uh, and in some cases, hundreds of samples per year. So that in, in uh, theoretically, we can actually track individual storms. Uh, and that becomes very important. 
because uh, being able to say how the length of a season, a summer season, which might be a dry season or a wet season, or how stormy a season is, uh, going back through time, is actually converting climate back to what it started as, which is weather. And we live in the weather. Uh, so from a day-to-day -day basis and a, and a season-to-season and a year-to-year, -year, we want to understand a lot about the weather. And then as you average that together, you want to understand a lot about the climate and what that climate trend is telling you uh, because superimposed on, on this sort of day-to-day uh, -day weather is this overall trend, which of course now throughout certainly much of the world is warming. So uh, I'm just fascinated by the logistics of this. How do you decide where to drill? How do you actually get an ice core out of a glacier? How do you make sure it gets back here to the lab from the Himalayas of the Antarctic without the thing melting? Well, the logistics fascinate us, too. Uh, and it's different. <laughs> Some sleepless nights, I'm sure, right? Yeah, and, and, and it's different everywhere. There are some places that are much easier than others. There are some sites that you can literally fly into by helicopter, uh, and that means that once you've drilled the ice core, you can helicopter it out, get it to a freezer truck or to an aircraft, and get it back to the lab uh, where we can work on it. There are other places uh, where it might be very cold, for example, the interior of of Antarctica, but we've got to transport it for long distances before you can get to a place where aircraft can pick it up. And there are other places like remote mountain areas, uh, n not necessarily Mount Everest today because on the south side where we just work, there, there are a lot of helicopters available. But, but for example, getting it from uh, 8,000 meters where uh, Mario Potosky uh, just recovered the highest ice core in the world down to 6,100 meters where the helicopter can pick it up is non-trivial. Uh, you can't carry a lot of weight at those elevations. Um, when we've worked on the north side of Everest, um, uh, we've been able to take the ice cores down uh, quite quickly because you can get off ice and start walking down and then you can be met by yaks. Uh, at slightly lower elevations, maybe uh, 5,000 meters, and from there you can get to, to trucks. Uh, in the Andes, we have, again, another set of uh, complications. And even once you get it to a freezer uh, that might be in a place where it can fly out or be taken out by ship, uh, there's a whole permitting process that you've got to go to go through. I mean, w we work in other people's countries, uh, and we uh, we always collaborate with local scientists. Uh, we always try to talk to locals about what we're doing so that they understand that we're not stealing their resources. There's some countries, uh, Chile, for example, uh, glacier ice is considered to be a natural resource. Uh, and, and you just can't take even a kilo of ice out in your pocket. Uh, it's a protected resource. You need permission, and, and, if, and for good reason, uh, because in Chile, uh, the glaciers are the prime source of fresh water, and they're the prime source of hydropower. Uh, so they're very important. Uh, so every place is different. <clears throat> um, and, then, uh, and then even once it gets back uh, to the university, you've got to worry about whether or not it stays frozen. Maine is cold in the winter, uh, but it's very hot in Orono in the summer, so we've got to make sure we have good systems. We get great support from the university and facilities and maintaining uh, the temperature of these things. Everybody understands that, you know, it's, it, 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 it's not inexpensive to collect these cores, um, number one. Uh, it takes a lot of time, number two. Some of these places we've collected ice cores from, either you can't get back to uh, for various reasons, or the ice has melted and it's gone. And these has resources, that happened to you? 
Uh, yeah, there are plenty of places where we've collected ice cores. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to get there uh, before the glacier basically disappeared. The thought of you know cutting edge science de depending on a, a herd of yaks just uh, seems uh, that's just an interesting uh, combination there. It's what makes the work super exciting too, uh, and you know it, it, one. You would think, well, okay, I'm going on expedition. I'm going to pick up these three bags, which I always carry with me, and off we go. Every single trip is different. Every single trip requires not only different, uh, a considerable amount of thought about whether or not the, the things that you used on the last expedition for uh, collecting uh, scientific data, uh, are they suitable, but, but even the clothing that you wear. Uh, and everything is constantly evolving. Uh, and the type of measurements that we're doing are constantly evolving. So you also have problems with, uh, you know, making sure that you don't contaminate uh, the ice core. Uh, number one, with how you collect it. Number two, with what you have in your hands. Uh, number three, with how it's transported and on and on. What is the deepest ice core you've ever been able to recover? And, you know, what's that process like of having to put that drill down in there? That must be some anxious moments there. Yeah. Well, I, I was fortunate enough in uh, 1987 to be uh, at a meeting which had um, basically representatives from 92 institutions there. I think it was close to 92 institutions. And uh, uh, somehow or other, uh, they elected this really young guy at that time, who was me, uh, to organize and lead the whole program. And um, we recovered the deepest ice core that can be collected from the Northern Hemisphere from central Greenland. Uh, it was a little bit over 3,000 meters. It took uh, five summer seasons of about three to three and a half, four months per season. Uh, it took more tra transport of more than one million pounds of equipment uh, using uh, ski-equipped C-130s, which U.S. is the only country in the world that has these things. Uh, it, it took large teams of people. It was what I would call industrial science. Uh, except we had to go and build the factory and, and do all of the work uh, in this remote place. Before we could do that, we had to do tons of reconnaissance. Uh, many different teams, I led some of them, were going around looking for the best place, understanding uh, not only what everything looked like at depth as well as we could, but you know what part of the atmosphere were we monitoring on and on. Um, so, yes, we collected the the deepest ice core that can ever be collected uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. It completely revolutionized the way we think about the climate system. Prior to the collection of that record, there were hints that the climate system might change quickly, uh, but nobody could actually prove it. Uh, we, along with our companion European program, uh, uh, 30 kilometers away, were able to demonstrate, and it took two, two groups to do this, because uh, it needed to be verified by two different groups, that in fact the climate system did not necessarily always take hundreds of years to change, which if that were maintained as true would mean that, you know, what you put in the atmosphere is going to take forever before it has an impact. We were able to demonstrate that the climate system operates faster than a political cycle, way faster actually, in one to two years, and that it can have dramatic effects on uh, relatively large parts of the planet, uh, not necessarily all at the same time. It can be a triggering effect that goes uh, throughout a hemisphere. Uh, and once that impact uh, comes to where you live, 
It can mean that you are going to, you've gone from uh, semi-drought to complete drought, so you're done with the farming business, uh, and therefore entire civilizations collapse. Uh, the most recent example, of course, is what's happened in the Middle East. Uh, subsistence farming was dramatically uh, decreased as a consequence of drought, and what happens? People need to turn to other things. And that was the Arab Spring and a variety of other, uh, and, and the same thing uh, in Somalia. Uh, and a very and many other places. It, it, it means that uh, for places that are not perhaps as dramatically impacted by drought, uh, it means that if you live in the Arctic, all of a sudden the sea ice that you used to hunt on, that maintained the ecology that you uh, that you depended on, uh, and, and that the world depends on uh, to have a balanced ecology, suddenly changes. And not only did it suddenly change, but it creates a trigger that makes it all the way, uh, itself all the way from the Arctic right throughout the Northern Hemisphere and changes the climate of, of Maine. Thanks for tuning in. Part two of our visit with Paul Majewski will drop next week. We'll talk a bit more about the adventures he's experienced, the politics and media coverage of the subject of climate change, among other topics. As always, you can find this and all of our podcasts in most of the places that podcasts are available. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. We welcome your feedback on this show and on our series in general. Drop us a line at mainquestion at main.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.